It is our passion to make much of Jesus around this place, to make much of him. And what you just saw in these baptisms is a portrait of the gospel. What Jesus can do in the hearts and lives of people. Three people representing three different walks of life coming from different backgrounds, but all intercepted by Jesus, by Jesus. And if you're here today and you're yet to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I, I just need to say this, and I don't mean to be in your face, but you have no excuse. There's no excuse. And in fact, you, you, you were born, all of us were born for a relationship with Jesus. And the fact that uh, you're feeling guilty at times, that's a gift from God. Really? Yeah, that's a gift from God. It's a wonderful gift from God. The fact that you, you feel like something is missing in your life, that's a wonderful gift from God. That's his grace and mercy reaching out to you. The fact that you're not satisfied with square footage and a new piece of metal that you drive down the road and the trinkets and toys and the brag wall with accomplishment and degrees, that's a wonderful gift from God. Why? Because you were born for more. You were born for him. These people were baptized because they declared, I was born for Jesus. You were born for forgiveness. You were born to experience joy. You were born to experience hope. You were born to accomplish something supernatural during your moment in history. And until those realities are in your heart and life, you will only have a negotiated peace. You only have a temporary fulfillment. You will only have a compromised satisfaction because Jesus has come to give you life, give all of us life, and give it to us more abundantly. Will you bow your heads with me? If you're here this morning and you're not sure that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, you can make sure right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for paying the price. I turn from my sin and I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Cleanse me and make me your child. You say, Crawford, that is so easy. That's on purpose. Jesus paid it all. And he has removed every barrier. The only barrier is your faith and belief. And if you pray that prayer, expressing that faith and belief in him, Jesus is your Savior. Father, we thank you so very much for your goodness, and we thank you for the hope that's found in the Lord Jesus, and we thank you that the tomb is empty, and we thank you, O oh God, for not making us satisfied. As, as our young brother said, who struggled with drugs and sat at that table with his mom, he said, I just hit bottom. Thank you for bottoms. Thank you, God that you hem us in and you say right now is your time. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you will strengthen all of us and I pray for myself and the rest of us and, and our, our body, Lord, as we um, go to jobs and go to Publix and 
go to gas stations and soccer games, lacrosse games, baseball games, football games, PTA meetings, HOA meetings, walks in the neighborhood, interactions on our business trips, sitting next to people on airplanes. Will you make us, those of us who call Fellowship Bible Church home, will you help us to make much of Jesus? Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you're the theme of our lives. Thank you that you're everything to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, fellowship. Good to see you this morning. A couple of uh, just real quick things. Um, thanks. Actually, just one thing that I want to underscore that Richard said. I want you, please, to take advantage of that wraparound and on your bulletin on how to and a little strategy on, on helping us to read our Bibles. And please don't take this as me fussing at anybody this morning. But one of my frustrations as a pastor and those of us on our team, because we, we sort of share in this, you know, there are folks here who have been believers for five, six, eight, nine, ten years, and um, we don't crack our Bibles or we kind of like do shorthand stuff, and then we wonder why there's all these spiritual weeds cropping up in our hearts and lives. Uh, there's no big secret here. Uh, there's discipline involved in the Christian life, okay? Uh, we don't grow because we feel like growing. We don't grow because all of a sudden I, I just had this thing overcome me and overwhelm me, and so now I'm reading my Bible every day. Well, we may have feelings here or there, but sometimes there's forced feeding in the Christian life, and there are disciplines that are there. And we, we want us to be in the Word as a, as, a, as a church and as families to be living the Scriptures. Bob preached a great message the other week about this. But for us to be in the Word as families, not so that we might be Bible brains and we can win arguments with people and all of that kind of stuff, but because this book right here is the voice of God and there's life in this book. And I want to tell you, you keep living life, you're going to need more than some cliches. You're going to need more than what some other preacher said. You're going to need to know the promises of God for yourself. When all hell breaks loose in your family and all of the pressures of life come visiting you, this stuff has got to be genuine and real bubbling up in your heart and mind. So we want to encourage you to do that because that's key to discipleship. Discipleship is not a bunch of programs, but it's commitment. And we want to follow through on all of that. If you've got a Bible, I want you to meet me in Matthew chapter 13. We're finally getting back to the book of Matthew after taking a bit of a break. I uh, did a break this summer, a series on living generously, a little short series we did on discipleship at home. And, and uh, then, of course, uh, the exciting time with our Serve Conference last week. And if you were not here to hear Brian Doyle's message, I was so blessed by his message. I want to encourage you, if you haven't downloaded our app on your Android, Apple, or whatever you have, download the app and uh, listen to that, that, that great, great message. But now we're getting back into the book of Matthew itself. I'm going to be covering the very last paragraph of Matthew chapter 13, but let me just remind us of where we're going. One of the reasons why I really felt led to, to stay in the book of Matthew, and we're going to be there for a while. We might take some other breaks as we have in the past, but we're going to be, in the, be there in a while, 
is because the book of Matthew parallels what we believe as leaders and elders where we need to be as a church, as a church. And again, uh, our mission statement here at Fellowship Bible Church, and I pray over this a lot, and I and even fasting and praying over this, I just get nervous about all these mission statements because they always end up the same place. I know I'm sounding a little bit kind of negative this morning, but a lot of mission statements end up little bylines that nobody really pays attention to, and it's, un it's not related to our reality. But we pray all the time that this mission statement is real in our hearts and lives, and that is that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love God passionately and love others unconditionally. We want that to be true about us. Not just a little statement on a brochure, but really, really true about us. And the book of Matthew, that is all over the book itself. The book of Matthew, and I've stated the theme in a statement way, and that is that we exist, we exist for the interest of the king and his kingdom. That's the only reason why we exist. We exist for no other reason. We exist for the interests of the king and his kingdom. Now the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that we exist for the glory of God, and that's true. That's a high banner there. But we exist for the interests of, of the king and his kingdom. We don't pimp Jesus, excuse the expression. We don't use Jesus. We serve Jesus. And our lives is to be the growing autobiography of Jesus Christ in human history. The king and his kingdom is what's happening. And we find ourselves under that canopy. Now, we're in Matthew chapter 13, the first part of the book of Matthew. Actually, we've come off this series of parables, but uh, Ma Matthew speaks of Jesus having been rejected. And by the way, these rapid-fire parables in Matthew chapter 13 is an expression of that. It's, there's the backdrop of rejection as Jesus speaks. But these parables have an awful lot to do with what is known as the kingdom of heaven, or my take on that is Christendom, Christendom. What do you mean by Christendom? As you read these parables, you'll find that a number of them, uh, Jesus is talking about the good and the bad being under the canopy of the kingdom of heaven, the genuine as well as the perpetrators, the real as well as hypocrites. There's the wheat and the weeds. There's, there's the mustard seed and the leaven. And uh, although I'm not touching the last two par uh, parables, they are very much uh, in line with that, uh, the parable of the net, uh, that, that what's in the net will be separated later on. And so he's talking about this growing Christendom that's under the canopy of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the same with the new and the old. But I want to pick up here in Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 53, and I want you to keep in mind as I read this, there really is an issue here that this narrative speaks to that is not spelled out, but it's very clear. And I think it's the subject matter of this paragraph. There's an issue, the word is not mentioned here, but this narrative clearly speaks to it. Jesus has just finished these rapid-fire parables. He's been ouched, so to speak, by the Pharisees, the rejection. And he comes back to the hometown that he grew up, and let's read what happens, beginning at verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, 
where did this man get this wisdom and those mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And, and, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And here's a lie. And they took offense at him. Why were they upset with him? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Can you guess the word, the issue that this narrative is framing? Jealousy. Jealousy. This narrative is saturated in jealousy. I've sort of like tongue-in-cheek entitled the message this morning, The Curse of Success. The curse of success. Now, this is a rhetorical question because if you're older than two or three years old, uh, all of us have experienced jealous feelings. Every last one of us. And if you say you've never experienced jealous feelings, then you really need to go see some good counseling friends of mine because you've got some hellacious self-perception problems. Every last one of us, if you're in relationship with anybody, and if you've ever grown up in a family, you've experienced some jealous feelings. Um, you, you feel like, uh, you know, something, something is wrong, right? and, and, and how, how come I'm being overlooked, or, or, or they're close to where I need to be. We all have had that. In fact, I want to say this to you. For those of us who are, are competitive in nature, and I'm leading the, 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 the front of the line, for those of us who are competitive natures, to be competitive is not, necess- it's not necessarily wrong. I think, in fact, I think there's some wonderful things about being competitive. But we have to keep in mind, if you have a competitive nature, you're probably just a quarter click away from jealous feelings. If you're competitive because you winning, there's a fine line between winning being the objective and butchering my rival. You know, and so this whole idea of jealousy permeates everything. Um, You know, it's in this church because none of us are the fourth members of the Trinity. We're growing. Uh, We have it in every relationship, every entity that we enter into. There is the presence of jealousy. Now, having said that, let me tell you where I'm going in this message. I'm going to do a little something a little differently than the way I typically preach. I want to focus on this text and answer the question, why were they jealous? Then secondly, I want to talk about the nature of jealousy, looking at Saul and David's relationship. And then thirdly, I want to talk about how to defeat jealousy. Now, I realize that, uh, you know, this could be three different messages. I got it, got it, got it. But I wanted to put it all in one setting here because I think it frames it all out. Let me define jealousy for a second here. This is Crawford's feeble attempt at defining it. Jealousy is nothing more than insecurity and fear triggered by someone we consider a rival or a person enjoying success or advantages that we think we deserve. But the operative expression is 
insecurity and fear. Insecurity and fear. Where there is insecurity and fear in relationships, that, is, that represents the fertilizer for jealousy. Jealousy grows where there's insecurity and fear and fear. Now, jealousy also, and I want to say this up front, is the grand destroyer of families and all other relationships. I, I, I'm trying to figure, I was trying to figure out this past week, you know, what, what destroys more relationships than jealousy? And I began to think my 40, 40 years of experience in ministry and on teams and relationships and in organizations and, you know, what causes things to go sideways? Well, this is at the top of the list. There's some other stuff, but this is right at the top of the list. Why didn't, why didn't uh, Joey show up for his sister's wedding? Why, why does Aunt Susie not show up for Thanksgiving? Why does, why does Dad not want to come to his cousin's so-and-so? And when you, when you unravel this stuff, you scratch it enough and dig enough, somebody got sideways because he's better than I am. There's more than I have. And we camouflage it with a bunch of sanitized nonsense to make it sound acceptable. It's a jealousy. Jealousy. This text represents just a hard time in Jesus' life. And I need to say this too. You know, when we study the life of Jesus, you got to remember that he's 100% man as well as 100% God. And so when you read a narrative like this, you have to ask yourself, how did he feel? You remember Matthew 26, just to give you an illustration, when Jesus is praying in the garden? He takes Peter, James, and John. You know why he takes them there? Because of the relational support. You know what happens when he prays? They fall asleep. And whenever you preach and teach the Bible, preach and teach it in its emotional context as well. I think when Jesus comes back and he sees them sleep, sure he's God and he's 100% God, 100% man, but he sees them sleep and he says, hey, yo, dude, man, couldn't you just, I'm going to die could he just, could he just watch with me a little bit? How do you think he felt when he came, come back to his hometown? He grew up with these people. His dad fixed their wagons and stuff. You know, it's all these folks in the village. So as you read this, Jesus has just come off the heels of massive rejection. Go back and read. Go back and read Sermon on the Mount all the way through chapter 13. In one sitting, you see, Jesus has just been dissed by everybody. And he comes home and he gets more of the same. I think there are three reasons why here uh, in the passage, why Jesus is, why they're jealous of Jesus cause them to be this way. Admittedly, the first one is a little bit of speculation, but I would say a little bit of informed speculation. The three reasons, there's a big banner. I think the overall reason is pretty obvious is that Jesus' success just made them uncomfortable, period. 
just, just bothered them. That's the bottom line. Just ticked them off. And let me say parenthetically, throughout the Bible, and you got you, jealousy throughout the scripture, throughout the Bible, the one thing associated with jealousy is irrational conclusions. Jealousy is always irrational. It doesn't make sense. That's the reason why it's jealousy. So Jesus comes back, but I think there are three reasons. The first reason is this. Um, they were jealous, number one, because where they lived. Nazareth. I don't want to bust them, but Jesus' hometown wasn't exactly a welcoming place, by the way, to Jesus. And uh, on a previous visit, the people had rejected him and attempted to throw him over a cliff. Uh, you read Luke, Luke, read Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 29. And Nazareth wasn't known for his hospitality. He comes back to his hometown after he's announced his ministry, you know, walks into the synagogue, op opens up the scriptures, he reads that incredible passage, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, goes out, and his own home folks, the people that he grew up with, they want to throw him over a cliff. If my chronology's right, this is about a year, year and a half later, he comes back, he gets more of the same treatment. What is it about Nazareth? Um, you know, verse 54 says that they were impressed with his powers and teaching, but they had rejected him again. Now, what is it about Nazareth? This is all speculation. The people of Nazareth were uh, suffering from a bit of what I call a geographical inferiority complex. If you know where Nazareth is located, now it's a bustling place right now. We were just there in May. It's what, 75,000, maybe 100,000 people there now. Bustling place. But roll back to the time of Christ, Nazareth is like a spit in a road. It was loosely, kind of sort of near a trade route on its way to Egypt. But not really. You kind of like had to be intending to go to Nazareth. They only had one freshwater stream that, that everybody used there in Nazareth. At the height of its population during the time of Christ, there wasn't more than 1,600 people there in Nazareth. They were overshadowed by Capernaum and all the other regions, big Jerusalem. Probably the people that stayed there, they grew up there, they were educated there, they were friends of folks there. You know, they were used to their way of life, and their way of life was like the 67th book of the Bible. You didn't violate it. Now, there's some small towns like that today. And they had this thing going, and maybe they were overshadowed. Being overshadowed caused them to turn inward. And I can tell you, I got some personal experience with this. You know, um, I grew up by the first 12 years of my life in Newark, New Jersey. Newark, New Jersey is 10 miles from Manhattan. Newark has always had a geographical inferiority complex, like Jersey City and Newark and Hoboken and all of that. They're in the shadows of Manhattan. Yeah, if it wasn't for Manhattan, we wouldn't live, you know? Or Camden, New Jersey. I went to college in Philadelphia. Camden's over the Ben Franklin Bridge. Camden? Camden's always had this inferiority complex. What about Gary, Indiana? Living in the shadows of Chicago. People in Gary, it's always had this inferiority complex. And I think Nazareth is one of these deals. There's no, there was nothing significant. So, so Jesus, Jesus, true, true to his birth, born in Bethlehem, grows up in Nazareth, doesn't come the traditional route. 
His own people dissed him. He came into his own, and his own received him not. So I think that was one of, one of the reasons why. Again, a bit of speculation, but I think you can draw from that. Second reason why they were jealous of him was because Jesus did what they couldn't. He did what they couldn't. See, his, his own family and friends didn't trust him. They were too familiar with him. He had grown up in their midst. Grown up in their midst. I just read a fascinating biography of Bill Cosby, the new biography. Fascinating. <laughs> and I was reminded of this. He, it, uh, the biography tells about when he really hit it big after the I Spy series. And, and he was just like mega superstar and stuff. And, and so he comes back to his hometown in Philadelphia. He had bought his mom a nice big house in, you know, near Germantown. And, and so instead of staying in a hotel, he has this big gig there. Instead of staying in a hotel, he decides, well, I just stay at mom's house and have my friends visit and this kind of thing. He said, oh, terrible idea. Terrible, terrible idea. Interestingly enough, they wanted to remind him, you ain't so bad. A little bit of Nazareth. A little bit of Nazareth. A little bit of Nazareth. The people who will hurt you the most are those who should be celebrating your success. It's been my experience, by the way. Not to sound like some martyr, but it's true. Often the people who will hurt you the most are the very ones you take for granted who should be celebrating your success. You become a threat to them. So he did what they couldn't do. Look at verses 55 and 56 again closely. Um, he says after they come out of the synagogue and he gives this incredible message and all this great wisdom and power listen out these rapid fire they explode these rapid fire questions the people say it's not this the carpenter's son it's not this his mother called Mary are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and are not all his sisters with us wait 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 wait, wait. what is he talking about that's Jesus we know Jesus in a business talking now all highfalutin you know, what, what, what is he saying? What is this? I, we, we saw him run around here. I, his daddy. I mean, we, I know, we know his family. Come on, man. Not all that. They're basically saying two things. Number one, Jesus, get off your high horse. You're just one of us. You come from a village family just like the rest of us. And that's the reason for this rapid fire stuff that they say here. That's not to be taken as some compliment. Oh, good Jesus. We know your brother. Could you be? No, that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, how dare you be different than us? And the second thing is, hey, you need to be cut down to size. You have no business teaching people and doing miracles. Don't do that. You make us look bad. Small people define greatness to the level of their own capacity. Never forget that. Small people always define greatness based upon their level of capacity. And that's exactly what they're saying. Just, don't, don't, don't go out beyond us. Just who do you think you are? The problem was that they could not see beyond the young man who had grown up among them. And the third reason why they were jealous, I think, is because um, Jesus had more exposure than they had. Yeah. Look, 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 at, look, at, um, look at the last part of verse 56. 
and are not all his sisters with us. Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. Well, what do you, what do you think? Because you traveled and you're exposed now? What are you saying about us? You come here talking this stuff and doing these miracles. Yeah, yeah, we, we heard about the, the thousands down by the Sea of Galilee in that sermon you gave. Yeah, we heard about all these kind of interactions you have with the Pharisees and the leaders. And yeah, we heard about some of those miracles that you performed. And, and are you going to come back here uh, thinking you're going to bring your personality that's larger than life, which it really was, and you're going to come back here and dwarf us? Is that what it's all about? By the way, one of the pet peeves of mine is this. You know, I just hated, excuse the expression, we, my, my dad used to call it this. He said, son, you have to be careful of the crabs in the barrel. You know what he meant by that? Now, all the ethnic people in here know exactly, and I'm not going to go there this morning. You ask the black folks later on what I was really saying, because I don't want to go there. There is an ethnic overtone to this. Um, ask us afterwards. This is going on radio. Yeah. Uh, see, my ADD hits me again. The whole crab in the barrel thing is this, and let me just sanitize it. It's if you decide, if you, if you get, you start growing and progressing and um, accomplishing things, Rather than them, a crab, if you're trying to get out of the barrel, they will take their claw and just pull you right back down. And Nazareth was guilty of a crab in the barrel syndrome. Pull, pull, pull them, pull them, pull them down here. They took offense at him. Why were they offended? Why were they offended? Because... It was a threat to them. They were hurt that he had become different from them. It hurt them. You must think because, you know, people say this all the time, you move in a bigger house. Oh, you must think, what do you know what I think? Don't say that about people who are successful and they move on and maybe... That's not where you are. Don't project on them some negative motivations. That may not be true at all. What, what do you know that they think? Now, you just think poorly of yourself, and you just wish that was you. Because it can't be you, you want to pull them down here and figure out some kind of weird way that they screwed up or have bad motives or they compromised their integrity or they, or they done this, 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 or that. That's what these folks are. They, they were offended by Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm not going to do any more miracles here because of your unbelief. But the narrative defines their unbelief. I think their unbelief was they, 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 they couldn't bring themselves to endorse who Jesus was. They just could not accept it. I saw you walk the streets, you played with my son, you, 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 know, you did these things, y'all told jokes together, your dad lives right over here, and his house ain't even as nice as our house is, and how dare you come back here telling us that you're the son of God. I ain't receiving that. I'm not going to do that. 
Secondly, they refused to change who they were. You see, wherever Jesus shows up, he requires change. Did you know that? Did you know that? Wherever Jesus shows up, you don't come in contact with Jesus and ever leave the same. If you authentically worship Jesus, there's always transformation. Jesus' presence requires change. And they weren't willing, they weren't willing, willing to do that. Willing to do that. Jealousy always cancels out the good in others. That's why jealousy is such a terrible thing. It always cancels out the good in others. If you find yourself unduly critical of another person or another organization or another ministry or another whatever it might be, that is a telltale sign that jealousy might be there. Ask yourself the question, why are you critical? How come it's hard for you to give that person a compliment? How come it's difficult for you to acknowledge what good they're bringing to the table? That's one of the things I have to watch in my life. If I'm critical of somebody, I ask myself, Crawford, ask myself a question, Crawford, 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 why are you going there, man? What's up with that? Why? Are you feeling a little threatened? Feeling a little insecure? You got to bring them down to size? You're erasing the good that might be in them so you can feel better? Now, having said that, let me quickly raise a transition question. I think this narrative begs us to ask and answer this question. Are we so consumed with our need for attention that we can't see who Jesus is? I think that that was the problem at Nazareth. They were so consumed with their need for attention that they couldn't recognize who Jesus was. Some people are like that, even Christians. We use Jesus to help bolster our self-esteem. Jesus didn't play those games. Now, having said that, uh, what is the nature of jealousy? What is the nature of jealousy? I won't spend too much time here, but I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I want to take a look at verses 6 through 12. And Saul's reaction to David gives us uh, three pathways or three insights into the nature of jealousy, what it is and what it does to us. And it's not a good thing. It is not a good thing good thing. Let me paint the picture of what's happening here in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 18. What is taking place is that God has gotten sick and tired of Saul always uh, doing whatever he wanted to do. Saul had this little partial obedience thing going. And by the way, there's no such thing as partial obedience. You either obey God or you didn't. And Saul had this little thing going and he would lie and he was insecure. Saul was highly threatened, intimidated. He had to lead by force and and so, finally, finally, God sends Samuel to Saul and says, hey, Saul, you know, time, Jack. Uh, God has rejected you as king. End of the road, you're fired. 
you're fired. And he's anointed this little boy, and that's what David was when he killed Goliath. He's anointed this little boy named David. Now, fast forward. Now we come to 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 18, um, beginning at verse 8. To say that Saul was jealous of David is probably the grossest understatement of the century. Read these words. Look at verse, look at, look at uh, uh, verse 8. The very first thing about the nature of jealousy is that jealousy is an expression of our inadequacies and failures. Did you hear what I said? Did you hear what I said? Jealousy is not about the other person. Jealousy is always the MRI of our inadequacies and imperfections. Jealousy says more about my character than it does about anything else. Where do you get that from? Well, look at verse 8. And Saul was very angry at this saying. What saying? Well, up in uh, uh, verse 7, these folks start singing. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousand. That wasn't a good PR campaign, David. But, you know, then Saul, here's that verse 8 says, And Saul was very angry, and this uh, saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And, 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 and what more can... Can he have but the kingdom? Well, you know, you know what, you know what? That was just a mirror. God allowed that. Because way back over here, he said, Saul, will you obey me? No. 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 Okay, gone. Fire. And he got ticked and angry because of the truth. So when you have jealous feelings, ask yourself the question, what deficit in me do I need to address? Relationally. Stay there for a while. I'm feeling overshadowed. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm feeling lost here. I'm feeling threatened. I, this person makes me feel uncomfortable. Whenever I hear of this ministry or church that's larger than mine, I sort of like want to find out what's wrong with them. What's making me do that? You'll find out. Something about an inadequacy in here, not over there. Secondly, jealousy is an, is an obsession that blinds us to reality. As I said earlier, jealousy is always irrational. Listen to what this dude does. Amazing. Verse 9 says, and Saul eyed David from that day on. That's a little Hebrew colloquialism. To eye someone meant that he became obsessed with him. Nothing in life matters. If you've ever been around folks who are baptized in jealousy, it's easy to understand this thing. They figure out every conversation, I don't care what you're talking about, it's going to come back to how bad this individual is or how bad this situation was or how really they're not that great. They get so blinded and obsessed by this thing, it becomes a campaign. Jealousy is always idolatry because it controls your reactions and your behavior. It becomes the new something that you worship. I've got to figure out a way to put him down. 
Saul's life is biography of this because 15 years from him, 16 years, David runs from him. 16 years. He's obsessed with trying to kill David. And thirdly, jealousy inspires irrational, destructive behavior. I guess I've already said that. Look at, look at what happens here. Beginning at verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. A little comment about that. And that does not mean that God sent the evil spirit. It's much in the, in the vein of Romans 1 when it says, and God turned them over. I think what the way to read this is that God stepped back and said, okay, you know, Saul, not only will you not obey me, you, 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 you are so full of yourself. I am going to step back away from you and show you the end result of disobedience. And God allowed this evil spirit to invade him. And he raved within the house while David was playing the lyre as, the day, as he did day by day. Um, Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear. For he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And verse 12 says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. But he had departed from Saul. So scared of David. One of the hard realities, and I've had to tell my sons this, I've told younger leaders this, and I remind myself of this. People will come out to hurt you because God's hands is on you. I don't, that's not some martyr statement that I'm trying to make, but it's true. Folks will come out to get you because God's blessing is on you. And the reason why they do that is because you are a mirror of their disobedience. This is crazy stuff, man. But these three observations you can see throughout biblical history. You see them played out in our own families. Now, they may not go as far as pinning people to the wall, although there's some crazy stuff. People have been killed because of jealousy. But it's played out every day. All right, let me quickly give you some suggestions as to how to defeat jealousy. This has come through my own journey. I wish I could say I live in heaven and board down here. I've had my seasons of jealousy as well. I'm goal-oriented, and I got some competitive juices in me, and there have been times in which I've bled over the line. So let me give you seven things to consider. Number one is this. Acknowledge and admit that you're jealous. That's the very first thing to do. Stop it. Stop rationalizing. Well, you know what they did to me. They've always, the mom always liked her better than me, and I've always had this. They've always, every time he turns around, he's always getting this thing. He doesn't help me out anyway. He's so successful and stuff. He's got plenty of money. He can do this for me, and he doesn't do this for me. He's got opportunity. He's got more engagement. Why don't you pick up the phone and call me and help me do this? Yeah, stop it. Stop it. Admit you're jealous. Admit that you're jealous. Number two, repent of it. I'm going to say something very hard at this point. 
not only just confess it to the Lord, but I would encourage you to go to the person you're jealous of, look him in the eye and say, you know, I've been jealous of you. The best disinfectant for sin is always the light. You know that guy did that to me? You know what he did to me? That dude walked away. I respected that guy. First of all, I ain't nobody to be jealous of. I said, man, brother, you need some help if you're jealous of me. You need some serious help. <laughs> you know. But he said that to me. And when he walked away, I was so humbled by his courage. Thirdly, identify why you are jealous. Make your jealousy redemptive. You say, what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Why are you jealous? Why are you jealous? You're jealous because guy got more education? Well, you can go to school. Well, who's saying you can't go to school? You, you, you're jealous because he lives in a nicer house or whatever? Well, let's say you can't save your money, leverage that, and, and do that. I mean, make your jealousy redemptive. Find out why are you jealous. Maybe, maybe the very thing that you're react, reacting to, God might want to give it to you. But if you stay parked there and keep throwing grenades at the individual, you're, you're not going anywhere. So ask the question, why am I jealous? Fourthly, consider the effect your jealousy has on you and others. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you this one. There's some things I wish I knew when I was 25 years old. I'm telling you, this is one of the, my, the reasons why I have such a passion to help younger guys out because all the crazy mistakes this idiot has made. But I, I got to tell you this. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen. Jealousy stunts your growth. Jealousy puts a lid on your future. It seals it. The great people I've ever met in my life, truly great people are givers. And folks who always run around criticizing somebody ain't never got over to mess with their families and what their mama didn't do or their daddy did or this kind of stuff. The people like that, they stay stuck and they still talk in that same old nonsense. You meet them 15 years later. It's, it's like verse 75 of the same song. Get over it. Do something about it. Understand that your jealousy is hurting your kids. It's hurting you. It's hurting your relationships. You're not going anywhere with it and you're terrible to be around. Yes, I said it. Now, you, you might think, you say, well, Crow, why are you so adamant about this? Because I've been around enough relationships and teams of people where all these jealous people, now I've got some yardage on me. I look back, and they're still way down the road here, back here. And just because you're able to critique and criticize people, big deal. Number five, remember that jealousy is always, now, you know, I'm trying not to use too many universal negative statements here, but this one is true. Jealousy is always about the person who's jealous. Jealousy is never about the other person. It's always about this individual. It's always about me. Number six, and this has been so profoundly freeing in my life, focus on what God has for you. God did not call Crawford to be successful at what he called somebody else to be successful at. Did you hear what I just said? 
God did not call you to be successful at what he called somebody else to be successful at. It is in the minding of your own business that you experience growth and impact. But it's when you're too much of a busybody into somebody else's concerns and you're getting all bent out of shape because they're down the road where you don't need to be, you, you just cannibalize what God has for you. That's what Jesus was talking about in John. You know, John, John what is it, John, John 21? That's the resurrection. John is speaking in the third person, and John is there with Jesus, and Jesus is talking to John. And Peter's sort of like intimidated by this, and don't be too hard on him. He had, he, you know, he, he's kind of betrayed Jesus, and Jesus put him back together. And Jesus, and Peter's feeling a little threatened by this relationship with Jesus. And so he says, Hey, yo, what about him, Jesus? You know what Jesus said to him? It's cold blooded. Jesus said, What is that to you? What, what business is that of yours? You, you go and do what I told you to do. The most successful people I've ever met in my life are people who have been consumed with they were, what they were supposed to do and they stayed out of other people's knickers. They stayed on their property. Stay on your property. Don't be so small. And the last one is this, number seven. Bless the person you are tempted to be jealous of. Stop viewing other people as your competition or as your rival, but view them as your partner. Two quick things and I'll be done. You know, you've heard me talk an awful lot about Bill Bright. But, uh, you know, uh, when Dr. Bright was alive, and this is still true today in Campus Crusade, but particularly with him, there was a policy, a policy of anyone in leadership. We could not speak negatively, publicly of any other ministry. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. If he heard that somebody said something negative about the Billy Graham Association or about InterVarsity Christian Fellowship or about the Navs, he didn't play that. It's a great lesson. It's a great lesson. And the reason why the ministry is so large is because rather than wasting all that emotional energy and running somebody else down, you focused it upon what God had called you to do. Isn't that what Paul did when he was in prison in Philippians chapter 1? Remember, he gets word he's in jail. And these folks are going, nah, nah, boo-boo. Paul is locked up in jail. And he says, well, you know, they hear you're locked up, Paul, and all these guys out there, and they don't know that you ain't got the large crowds anymore, and, you know, they're being invited, and you're not being invited anymore. And, you know, they're, they're saying, hey, look, you know, Paul's away from us. He's a has-been. This is kind of... You know, Paul didn't go there. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> he didn't go there. He hears about that. He says, hey, look, fine, whatever. The issue is, yeah, they may have wrong motives. Okay, well, that's on them. I'm not, go I'm not getting in that spitting contest. They, they may have wrong motives, but the issue is Jesus is being preached, and if he's being preached, they're my partners, and I'm not going to consider them my rivals. Bless those that you're tempted to be jealous of. Big people are focused people. 
big people do not allow other people's mess to become their mandate. Big people realize they only have one life and they ain't got a whole bunch of time to be blogging about how somebody else is screwed up. They stay by their stuff. Thank you for letting me be a pastor today. You stand up. Let's help each other. Let's help each other. We don't have a lot of time. None of us, none of us, we have an expiration date stamped on us, on us and we don't know when that is. Let's help each other to be big and not to be petty. And if we got to go back and apologize to family members for, for stuff, and if we got to go back and make things right with people, let's be the ones who take the initiative to do that. Let's keep the ball on the other side of the net. We got to confront some jealousy and things like that. Let's do that. If we fuel a bunch of silly nonsense by irresponsible statements and that kind of thing to stir stuff up, and there are people who do that best, let's straighten that out. You want to be known as a person who is passionately absorbed with what God has for you and not sidetracked by being so easily offended and manipulated because the jealousy monster has overtaken you. Let's be big folks. Amen? I'm going to have the elders come, and if there's any, any prayer need that you have, we're here for you, elders, staff, and Stephen ministers who are in this service. Father, we thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Lord, we are fallen creatures. Um, we know the Bible, but the Bible leaks from us from time to time. And we need to be reminded. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be big people. Help us to be big people. Help us to choose the way of David and not the way of Saul. Help us, oh God, that even when we're stung by things that are not right to know how to respond to them, but to keep on trucking. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you'll bless us indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.